Hey, welcome to the sermon series from Life Church Green Bay. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time joining us, we want to do life with you. While you're listening, fill out our hello card on our website so we can connect with you. Visit lifechurchgreenbay.com forward slash hello to fill it out. Make sure to check the I'm new here and online options while filling out the card. Again, we're so glad you're with us today. Here's this week's message. Good morning and welcome. I hope you're all recovered, rested, with full bellies and well from this weekend celebration. I am Pastor Becky, one of the pastors here at Life Church. And today we're wrapping up our series uh, called Family Meeting. You know, scripture is a story of a family, God's family, God's chosen people, heart-wrenching tales of love and rejection, promises and betrayal with generational impact. And just like some of your family stories, the stories we find in the Bible are challenging, overwhelming at times. We couldn't end a series about family without addressing the wounds that we can experience in our families. Wounds caused by what was done, and what someone failed to do. Jeremiah 6.14 in the message version says, my people are broken, shattered, and they put on band-aids saying, it's not so bad, you'll be just fine. How many of us have heard that? But things are not just fine. The NIV says it this way, they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. Now, some of you went home this week and it was painfully apparent that the same family wounds, the same family issues are present. And some of you didn't even go home at all. And those that did, you braced yourself. You avoided certain interactions. You've learned how to navigate and mitigate the unpleasantness. But still, there is no peace. And you've wondered, will it ever get better? This is the story we see in the book of Genesis and today's message entitled Family Wounds. Let's pray. God, we thank you for being mindful of us, for speaking to us through your word, reminding us of who you are and who we are in you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, the book of Genesis is where we find the story, the family story of Abram and Sarah. It's a story of blessing, great blessing, and it's a story of pain. After 11 chapters that covered 2,000 years of human history, suddenly the literature turns to poetry, indicating that the story is slowing down, zooming in, if you will, to four generations over 38 chapters. And it's in chapter 12 of Genesis where we find that God slows down the narrative and enters into conversation with Abram. In verse 1 and 2, it says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And so Abram goes, taking his wife Sarah, and in verse 7, it says, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And in chapter 15, God goes on to paint a picture for Abram. He says, look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. Now to understand the vastness and how extraordinary this promise was, we have to understand the context. Because when God makes this promise to Abram, he is 75 years old. And Sarai is 65. And they were childless. 
So God was essentially saying, I am about to take your limitation and show you that I am limitless. I'm going to take your pain and I am going to show you a peace that surpasses all understanding. So five times in chapter 12, God speaks blessing and greatness over Abram, promising to enlarge his territory well beyond his and Sarai's capacity through family. But before the conception, in order for their capacity to be expanded, they were going to be cultivated. And for that, verse 9 tells us that Abram set out and continued toward Negev. Now, Negev means a barren place, a challenging environment. Scripture actually introduces us to Sarai with one statement. Sarai was barren. And barrenness in scripture metaphorically means a condition of despair, hopelessness, and no future. It is the very definition of a generational curse or stronghold. At 65 years of age, Sarah was well beyond childbearing years. So after 10 years pass, after God makes this promise, after 10 years of waiting, we find Abram and Sarah questioning God, wondering, did God really say and the wondering turns into doubt, and the doubt turns into despair. In chapter 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. You don't have to watch soap operas. You can just read the Bible. This is atrocious. This, like, don't do it, Abraham. But he does. Reading this part of the story, it's hard to understand how Abram and Sarah can be included in the list of the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 who believed and considered the Lord faithful. See, faith is an inner certainty regarding the things you cannot see. It is rooted in a confidence that knows that we can be certain of God even in the face of uncertainty. But at this point in the story, we don't see faith at work yet, but fear, fear and pain and insecurity. Fear tells us to anticipate, to plan for, to navigate, to make some obstacles, to be on the alert for danger, threat, hurt, and harm. It will physiologically change your brain, set off the alarm systems, your thoughts, your emotions. Your body will always be in a state of readiness for the thing that you fear, and it will change your behavior. Abram and Sarah fear that God was not who he said he was, and they fear that they were not who he said they were. Back in chapter 12, right after God makes Abram a promise, it was fear that prompted Abram to give his wife, Sarai, whom he had vowed to love, honor, protect, and provide for to a pagan foreign king as they passed through Egypt, leaving Sarai in a vulnerable, dangerous, compromising position, betraying her and wounding her deeply. And it is the same fear that prompts both Sarai and Abram to replicate the same trauma that Sarai had endured, repeating the same wound that he had inflicted on Sarah, taking Hagar, an Egyptian woman, a painful reminder of Sarai's wounding, giving her to Abram, leaving Hagar in a vulnerable, dangerous, compromising position. Talk about family cycles. Psychologist Gabor Mate says trauma isn't what happened to you. 
It's what happened inside of you as a result of what happened to you. Because when our stories aren't healed, they will be reenacted. That science, but also scripture. The pain of unhealed wounds will erupt in the most terrible ways, wounding the people around you and especially those closest to you. Because what we don't repair will be repeated until there's a resolution. For those of you who say, I'm just going to hold it all inside and I'm not going to affect anybody. I'll just suffer it through and it won't impact anyone. This story is telling us that it does. Nothing that you think that you buried won't come to the surface because God created you to heal. And so it's going to come up much to your dismay. But thank God for that because he wants you to be free of the things that are holding you down. In psychological terms, it's called arrested development. It's when growth has plateaued, when you've been wounded and the pain has made you unwilling or unable to take authority like Pastor Sean preached about last week or to be emotionally vulnerable like Pastor Dallas preached the week before. So instead, we construct coping mechanisms and defense structures and make psychological maneuvers. And let me tell you that those are temporary. They will fall. We experience spiritual arrested development when rather than turning to and trusting the one that can provide and who has made us promises, we turn to a substitute, a surrogate, if you will, relying on our own reasonings and rationalizations or relying on someone else or something else to relieve the pain of our fears, conflicts, or anxieties, putting our hopes, our happiness, our identities onto a person, place, or thing. Sarai says, perhaps through her, I can build a family. Perhaps if he changes, perhaps if I get that position, perhaps if my son makes the team or gets into that school, perhaps if I confide in my coworker, danger, Will Robinson, perhaps if pastor talks to him. Jeremiah 17 tells us that cursed are those who put their trust in mere humans, who rely on human strength, either your own or someone else's, and turn their hearts away from the Lord. Abraham and Sarah and Hagar aren't the first relationship triangle we see in Scripture, but it is possibly the most destructive with wounds it inflicted still evident today. Because the only surrogate you will ever need is Jesus Christ. Because the only triangle you should ever be in is with God. When we are in God's divine triangle, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there is stability, strength, security, peace. Any other triangle is unstable. It is not only limited, it is limiting, creating unhealthy, repeating cycles in its collapse. We see this family cycle repeating when in Exodus, Abraham's grandchildren returned to Egypt, the place of Sarai's wounding, and like Hagar, end up in slavery. Looking to Pharaoh for help and relief, a surrogate, for over 300 years until they finally turn to God and he delivers them. We see the cycle repeat again in the wilderness when they're leaving Egypt, when the Israelites circled it for 40 years, but God's mercies were new each morning until they were ready to cross into the promised land, healed, equipped, and prepared to take that promised land. And we see this in neurobiology. 
Our brains and our bodies repeat the motions, the schemas, the embedded neural pathways of the things God is working to uproot, remove, and heal us from until they're resolved so that we can confidently walk into and receive his promised land for us. I desperately wanted to bring you a one-size-fits-all solution today to heal intergenerational family wounds. But we all know it's more complicated than that. The wonderful thing is, when it comes to our wounds, God takes a relational approach. God heals our wounds and refines us in three ways. He prunes, he prepares, and he positions. Because even though fear can change your brain, so can faith. In the parable of the vine, in John 15, Jesus tells us that pruning happens for our fruitfulness to reveal what is overburdened, overwhelmed, and limited, to refine our connection with the vine, God, in relationship and in communication so that we too can see the promises God has in our lives and in our families come to fruition. Hebrews 12, 11 says, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. In this family story, in Genesis, we see God pruning and preparing, revealing and refining. In this story, we see all four trauma responses erupt, and God address each one, one by one, and one on one. In Sarah, we see her wounds create a fight response. In the wait and anticipation of God's promise, Sarah prematurely jumps into action. Her wound was the betrayal that had left her powerless and vulnerable in Egypt. So 10 years after the promise, faced with the fear that barren would always be her identity, in chapter 16, she tells Abram, take my slave. Beginning a cycle of wounding and conflict and desolation of human dignity that we still see witnessing today. Infected wounds are contagious. A wound can divide and multiply, steeping its sons and daughters until entire families are taking sides, fighting, suing, not speaking to each other. They can carry down for generations, extending well beyond anyone's memory, creating infamous family feuds. The Montagues and the Capulets of Romeo and Juliet, the Hatfields and the McCoys of the South, Israel and Palestine. And so God had to prune her wound, cut away the infection that told her that she could not rely on anyone but herself, that what God had promised was not possible. So she waits another 14 years, 25 years pass in total. She's 90 now before she sees the promise fulfilled. Not because God is punishing her, but to prepare her so that there would be no doubt that he is the God of impossible places to position her in the confidence that she could rely on God to bring life to any situation every single time. In Abram, we find a repeating cycle, a freeze-fawn response. His failure to leave his father's house, his habits, proclivities, and practices, surrogacy was a practice of his people figuratively, emotionally, and spiritually, as God has instructed, meant that when he came to a challenging situation, his repeated avoidance and failure to live in the authority of God's covenant created havoc for the people around him. It created havoc for Sarah and Hagar, 
chapter 16 goes on to say that Hagar did conceive and she despised Sarai for it. In verse 5, Sarai says, you, Abraham, are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Now you may be thinking here, wait a second, sister, you're the one that suggested this. He just went along with you. Unless we know the context, what she's talking about is the wounding that had happened in Egypt that brought an Egyptian woman in her home that had delayed the promises of God in their life. And so she turns to that surrogate, the same place of wounding, repeating the whole thing. You have wronged me, Abram, and I am suffering. May the Lord judge between you and me. You don't say something like that and you're, unless you're sure that God's going to answer the right way. <laughs> To which Abram responds, you deal with it, taking no responsibility. So Sarai did, and in her hurt, she hurt Hagar. Some versions say she mistreated her. Others outrightly say she abused Hagar. And so God had to prune Abram, and he prepared him over and over. If you continue the story in chapter 15 and 17, 18, 21, 22, in gift and grace, God reminds Abram of his promise. He teaches him what covenant is. He shows Abram who he is, doing whatever it takes, including allowing him to bring himself back. Again, to bring himself back to places of hardship until he begins to live in confidence. In chapter 17, God marks and acknowledges the change in Abram by changing his name to Abraham, which means father of nations. God is positioning him for the vastness that he had promised him. In chapter 21, we see that God fulfills his faithful promise. He fulfills it with a son, Isaac. But the joy of his arrival is infected by the wound, the pattern of abusive behavior continuing with Ishmael now, the son of Hagar, toward Isaac. But it's not Abram who is dealing with this now. It is Abraham who's in a challenging position, facing, again, a hard decision, one I'm sure he would have rather avoided. God tells him to send Ishmael away. This was his son the one he had begged God to accept as his heir. Verse 11 says he was distressed, but this time he didn't avoid and he did not delay. In verse 14, it says early in the morning, he sent Ishmael and Hagar away, turning from what Galatians 4 describes as the covenant of the flesh, his family legacy, and choosing the covenant of the promise, divine legacy. Which brings us to Hagar and her flight response. See, poor Hagar, she is the collateral damage of a terribly wounded family. For 10 years before these events, she had seen Abram build altars. She had seen him pray to the one true God. She has seen God's favor and God's blessings on Abram. She could have never imagined that these people, God's people, could be capable of this type of harm. And so verse 6 says, she ran. In verse 7, it says, the angel of the Lord found Hagar in a spring in the desert. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from? And where are you going? And these are God's questions to all of us. Whether you have been an avoider like Abram or been wounded by one, or you're like Sarah and have taken things into your own hands and just created a bigger mess, or you're Hagar who trusted and suffered unspeakable harm, God is telling you he sees 
your wounds. God doesn't forget Hagar. When scripture says that Sarai hurt her and she runs away to her own wilderness in her own despair, it says that God opens up conversation with her, letting her know that he sees her suffering and he sees Abram and Sarah's sin. He sees her barren, hopeless future. And then he makes her a promise to multiply the sun in her belly greatly to give them both a hope and a future. And then he tells her to go back, face the situation, resolve the conflict, to trust not Abram and Sarah, but to trust him. Now this may seem like a harsh and unjust ask if we don't look at it through the lens of pruning and preparation, through the lens of a wise and loving God who is changing her identity from the one who runs from so that he can position her to run too. And so she goes back, and for 14 years, her son Ishmael, whose name means God listens, is groomed into a young man by his father who loves him, who counsels him and instructs him, who cultivates Ishmael's capacity in a house marked for greatness until both Hagar and Ishmael are ready. And then Abraham emancipates them. They're not running from now they're running to, to a unique purpose that God has been laying the groundwork for in their lives. There's a difference between running away and God moving you from a cycle of flight to a pruning and a positioning that produces a healthier, more fruitful vine. It may not have made sense at the time. And I'm sure that this pruning likely felt like a wounding to Abraham and to Ishmael. But both Abraham and Hagar had learned to seek God, to see God, to trust God and his promises with life itself. Romans 4.19 tells us this. It says, Abraham's faith did not weaken, even though at about 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. You just got to love the phrasing of the Bible sometimes. <laughs> Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger. And in this, in his faith growing stronger. It didn't start out that way. How did they make it to the heroes of the Bible? Because their faith grew stronger. And in this, he brought glory to God. In the end, he was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises. See, Abraham, before anyone knew that resurrection was possible, had learned to believe God so much that when God asked him to send away his eldest son, he trusted God with his son's life. He believed God so much that later, when God asks him to sacrifice his promised son, Isaac, the son of the covenant, well, he basically figures if God could bring life out of their dying bodies, there was nothing he couldn't resurrect, raise, restore, and redeem. So even if he did sacrifice his promised son, God would certainly raise Isaac from the dead. <laughs> what faith? What about you? Do you know this yet? What is the impossible, dying, or dead situation you're coming from? I don't know if you've been Abram. I don't know if you've been Sarah. I don't know if you've been Hagar, or you've just been witness to these events in your families. But I do know where God is taking you and where he was taking us all. 
What scripture shows us through this story is that regardless of the mess, regardless of the impossible places and cycles of wounds that have been your family legacy, he is changing your name. The strongholds, no matter how far back they go in your life or your family line, do not supersede God's claim on you. You are part of God's divine family. When we understand that he is ours and we are his is when we will see the God who sees us. And we will understand as well that the wounds that have marked us, limited us, identified us, were broken on the cross, paid for in full. Family can be a problematic concept until you know that you are part of God's divine family, his kingdom. Know that this house has taken a hold of God's vision for kingdom, where he will stretch us and challenge us. He is not satisfied for us being complacent and staying where we are. You've done pretty well, so just hang out there on the shelf, my son. He is going to reveal and refine in us until you too are certain of the vastness of the blessing that he has for you that comes with belonging to his family. And I know that can sometimes be uncomfortable. I know that you don't always want to be vulnerable and go to the intimate places that you'd rather leave the Band-Aid on. But God loves you too much to leave you there. God loves you too much for you to be robbed of the vastness of his promises for you. Jeremiah 17 goes on to say this. But blessed are those who trust in the Lord and have made the Lord their hope and confidence. They are like trees planted along a river bank with roots that reach deep into the water. Such trees are not bothered by the heat or worried by long months of drought. Their leaves stay green and they never stop producing fruit. My friends, there's one thing I could leave you with today, it's this. Don't let the present pain and discomfort of family wounds distract you from the greater gain that we have being a part of God's divine family. His timeline well extends beyond any timeline you could draw up and tell me the problems of. You belong to him and he is yours. Don't pull back, don't run, and don't be tempted to come up with a different plan. God's plan is good. It's a story of salvation. Jesus, born on earth to redeem us, to adopt us, to graft us into his vine, his legacy, to his inheritance, to remind us that we are made in his image with a calling and a purpose and a place in his kingdom. Today he is asking you, where have you come from? But more importantly, where are you going? Will you receive him? With every eye closed and every head bowed, if you want the cycle of pain, of discomfort and wounds in your life and in your family to be healed, would you raise your hand? Yeah. If you've raised your hand for the first time, me and my friends, we wanna pray with you. So every eye closed, head bowed, repeat this prayer with me. Jesus, I'm a sinner. In my wounding, I have been a wounder but I'm sorry, please forgive me, heal me, restore me, resurrect in me, and make me new. Give me your name, give me your legacy. Be my Lord, be my savior, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us this week. 
Still thinking about the message? Go follow our message recap podcast, Chew on That. The Chew on That podcast is a podcast where Life Church staff chew over the latest messages to dig deeper into our faith. Tap the link in the episode description to have a listen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week.